Audience numbers for Mises Institute podcasts are going through the roof, and we want to thank our great listeners with a special deal. Per Bilan's primer on Austrian economics, how to think about the economy, has become one of the best sellers in the Mises store, and we're giving it away for free to our podcast listeners. This short book is a great refresher for understanding proper economic logic and also a perfect introduction to economics for friends and family. So get your free copy of How to Think About the Economy by visiting mises.org slash free. That's H-A like human action, pod free. This is the Human Action Podcast, where we debunk the economic, political, and even cultural myths of the days. Here's your host, Dr. Bob Murphy. Jonathan, welcome back to the Human Action Podcast. Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me. Well, you and I recently saw each other in person to confirm that neither of us is an AI bot uh, down in Fort Myers. So that was a fun event. And um, maybe folks will put a link to our talks. I think by the time this episode drops, that stuff will be available. So we'll go ahead and put that in the show notes page if you're curious as to what Jonathan and I talked about down in Fort Myers. But today we are discussing Jonathan's recent article on Mises.org having to do with Mises on the history of warfare. So Jonathan, why don't I turn it over to you? And first of all, you know, what made you pick this topic? And can you kind of set the stage for what we're going to be talking about? Well, the reason I picked this topic is obviously because of uh, there's all sorts of conflict going on in the world today and uh, heightened tensions in Europe and in uh, the Middle East. And so I thought it would be a good idea to take a, a look at what Mises had to say about what war is, what are the economics of war, uh, what is the history of warfare. Uh, in fact, the title of the article is Mises on the History of Warfare. And what I did was I, I just looked at, there's just the short passage, this short chapter in, um, in human action uh, called The Economics of War, in which Mises, it's a, it's a really deep dive, really deep philosophical stuff that he's talking about, about uh, what causes war, what are some of the ideological conditions for war, um, what, what is total war, what, what are the characteristics of modern war, those sorts of things. And so uh, maybe just to get us started, uh, the first thing that Mises talks about is the history of warfare. And of course, he goes way back to primitive times. And he says that the that primitive wars were total wars in which the tribes would try to totally annihilate one another. And that this, this, this style of war, this, this sort of way of waging war uh, goes into like imperial times when, when countries would just try to wipe the map. They try to, they try to take over huge sections of, of, of territory and the way that they would do it was just by annihilating their, their enemy. Uh, but then he said that there was a change in the medieval period um, and under feudal times in which uh, feudal lords uh, had limited obligations under the kings that they served. And because of these limited obligations, they, they weren't as gung-ho as the monarchs that they served um, in, in waging war. And so they would actually, they would be uh, less willing to offer up men uh, in military service. They'd be less willing to, to keep on waging wars. And so wars wouldn't be totally endless. And because of this, Mises talks about how war in the medieval times turned into a limited war. So where, where monarchs would try to just capture like one or two cities at a time, as opposed to taking over whole territories. But then Mises talked about how in, in modern times, we've gone back to total wars in which uh, we're, we're just trying to totally wipe out the enemy and there's really no uh, protection of innocence, no protection of, of those who, who would be neutral. Um, and, he, and he talks about some of the reasons why. And the, the reasons why is it's basically because of statism. It's because uh, governments have, by introducing protectionist policies there's there's reasons for the citizens to to be on the side of war making to to be okay with the waging of wars and so they're willing to suffer uh, huge sacrifices in their standard of living and so on and so because wars become popular under those circumstances it, it makes it possible for modern states to wage these these huge wars one one uh, important point that mises uh, makes here is that it's not just the technology uh, so a lot of people say that uh, modern technology makes 
total war possible. Uh, but Mises says that that technology is just a tool. It's it's technology is, is just something that is produced by the market, and if the market is uh, subjugated by the rulers, so that uh, our economy is producing these these weapons of war, then that's what the economy will produce. So like if so, there is a way to direct the economy towards the production of these of these weapons, but it's not the production of the weapons themselves that makes war possible and, and total war possible. It's really just who, who is uh, guiding production. And Mises says that if it's, if it's a free market economy, then the citizens, the consumers will be sovereign over production. And so you'll get things like uh, butter and you'll get things like food and shelter being produced as opposed to um, atom bombs. Okay. Yeah. So you covered a lot there just to uh, respond to a few of the points you made. So when we talk about total war, just for the modern listener to make sure we understand what we mean by that term, it has to do with, like, so clearly, like, by World War II, that was clearly a total war, where, uh, for example, you know, the bombers from each side would go and, and hit civilian centers, and the rationale being like, hey, well, you know, th- those people are, a lot of them are going into the munitions factories, and even not, even a bus driver in a sense, is you know, if you're a German, then a British bus driver is helping the British war effort, and so even taking out bus drivers, like, hey, that's on the table, and vice versa, of course. Uh, you know, the Allied bombers going ahead and just carpet bombing, and that all stuff could all be justified as, hey, this is all part of the war effort. There's a sense in which, hey, nobody's uh, an innocent bystander, and so whatever one thinks of that, the point that Jonathan's making, you know, echoing Mises is that that actually didn't used to be the case back in, you know, the, the middle ages, for, for example, there was definitely a delineation that the average person, you know, some peasant would think that, oh yeah, the, the monarchs are at war again, or the, the, the nobility and, you know, those rich men go to battle each other. And it largely didn't interfere with the lives of the average person. And, you know, there's there something kind of, they went off and did. And so, one might think, oh, yeah, the, the big reason for that difference is if you're just fighting each other with uh, cannons at best, or especially if it's just, you know, guys on horseback going at each other, then there's a sense in which, yeah, you can contain that and not attack little toddlers w- walking around in the town, whereas if you're dropping huge bombs, then it seems obvious. But But again, Jonathan, just if you can reiterate that, that Mises was saying, no, the, the reason like the 20th century we saw the resurgence of total war was not merely a technological one, that there was there was like an ideological change that had happened from, say, the 1600s to the 1900s. And that explains why we saw this resurgence of this doctrine of total war. Yeah. So Mises talks about how uh, in in our modern in modern wars, the country that is more well-supplied, more prepared for the war is more likely to be victorious. Obviously, that's not, that's not the only thing. So just having a material advantage is not the only thing that determines victory in war. Uh, but he, he talked about how the productivity of the market economy sort of uh, counterintuitively uh, makes it possible for, uh, for, for countries to win wars. And so he, he talks about this, this sort of compatibility versus incompatibility of capitalism but but to the point that you're, that you're getting at here about 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 technology it's that it's that engine of production in the market economy that makes the production of those of those war technolo- technologies those military technologies that would give countries the ability to to win a war and what what makes the production of those technologies possible is the fact that the state takes over production so it's not like uh, it's not like in capitalism, we just we just have all these massive uh, weapons of war uh, being produced for consumers, and then the state sees all these weapons being produced and says, "Hey, why don't we commandeer? Why don't we take all of these these resources and use it to wage war?" No, what happens is that the the state demands those resources be produced by the market. So so they they take over production and then produce the, those things uh, for for the war making and war waging um, process. So it's it's not the case that that the technology determines, uh, or or that technology causes war to happen. What what matters is 
does this it does the state have the capability of taking over production and making those weapons so that they they can then wage war and for that for that to occur you need you need statism you need you need the people to be on board with with the state taking over production and also waging the wars and so that's what mises says is the ultimate is the ultimate cause of wars it's it's the conflict between countries that's caused uh, by policies like protectionism where there's heavy tariffs applied um, and and if you have that sort of thing, then it makes it easier to convince all the people in your country that it's it's a good idea to wage this war because it would be in our economic interest. So so then the state could credibly say, well, I can I can increase your standard of living if we win this war because because then we can we can change the policies we can we can make it so that. Uh, the industry within our country will, will be better off. So it's it's because of those sorts of ideological reasons that we see um, wars being caused, not not just the existence of of a certain technology. Mm-hmm. And and even to just to extend the point, just more like I do want to unpack the like. What do you mean? How how does tariffs? What the heck does that have to do with with wars? And so yes, I definitely want to get into that. But even just at a more uh, big picture level. That, um, and, and I think Hoppe talks about this in his book *Democracy: The God That Fails*, and you know, in other essays, I'm sure. The idea, though, that say what you will about hereditary monarchies, um, but the people, th- there was a clear distinction between like the state and the the subjects, the people that lived under its jurisdiction, and so you know, nowadays we think of like, oh yeah, in the 1940s. France went to war with Germany it, as opposed to, you know, centuries earlier, it may have been more like the king of France went to war with certain barons or what have you. And so, and the people would not have necessarily thought like, ah, yes, whatever it is that my king decides to do, it's basically he's acting on behalf of everyone who speaks that language. And so really, if you think about it, it's all the English speaking people are now at war with all the French speaking people. Like, that's just not how they thought. And, you know, so if you don't like war, <laughs> that was probably a good thing, at least, you know, in and of itself. And so that, and I believe a lot of historians like would point to Napoleon, for example, as a turning point. Like that's one of the ways that he sort of, you know, convinced people that, you know, I am the embodiment of the French people. And and that's, you know, he, so he raised huge armies to that method and then the other European powers felt like well, they had no choice. And geez, we got to have conscription now too because how the heck can our paid mercenaries go up against this French army that's so massive because the people are all you know in it and they, they all think they're marching for their you know country, not just that they're being uh, you know paid to go join some expedition that some nobleman uh, wants to dally in for his own vanity. So, uh, I, so I guess... You know, the, the argument being made is a lot of people nowadays, they love, you know, democracy is almost like synonymous with good government, the way people use these terms nowadays. But that one of the downsides of that, at least if you're someone who doesn't like mass war, is that when people start thinking of like, oh, yeah, the, what the U.S. government does, that's representing the will of the American people. And so if the U.S. government is at war with some other government's military, really, that's like our whole people – are now in bitter conflict with that whole people over there, that that's actually not very conducive to peace. Right. And Mises talks about the flip side of this. So he talks about how uh, the unpopularity of wars, especially during under monarchies, uh, it led to the emergence of revolutionary wars. So in, in his history of warfare, he talks about how <clears throat> if, if, the, if the people under some king uh, didn't like the fact that they were being taxed so heavily to for this war to be waged, then they would actually start to revolt. They would they would uh, in, try to rise up against the uh, the king because because the not just the taxes but also uh, the 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 cost of lives and but also the tyrannical sort of policies that have to be put in place by the government so that the war could be waged smoothly. Of course, of course, we're all familiar with the fact that states have to crack down on speech, um, especially during wars. So, so these wars were unpopular, and to the extent that they were unpopular, people would rise up against. And so, and so Mises talked about how there was just like this new category of war that emerged um, on the scene, and that was the Revolutionary War, where people were 
were they were upset with the heavy taxes. They're upset with the the tyr- uh, tyrannical uh, governments that um, were above them, and and they decided to try to take them down. So, uh, and w- one thing that we we haven't mentioned yet is that a- around the same time when the Revolutionary Wars were were being uh, started, we had Mises talks about how the philosophy of liberalism uh, came on the scene, and and he talked about how in in this ideology under liberalism. Um, the division of labor and international trade was was seen as like this great thing. And, and so all throughout this chapter in human action, Mises contrasts war making with the, what he called the peaceful cooperation under the international division of labor and how they're like polar opposites. So we can either all fight each other and compete over resources and have these ideological wars or religious wars where we're all, we're all fighting each other or we can all trade with each other. We can all peacefully cooperate with, with one another where uh, like people in one country specialize in producing one thing, people in another country specialize, specialize in producing something else, and we can work together to trade so that we're all better off, so that we have this, this sort of uh, harmony b- between, between countries. And M- Mises talks about how this, this sort of, it's not an accident. Like the international division of labor is not something that just arises accidentally. They're actually incentive, they're economic incentives to be a part of such an arrangement. And so that's why, that's why the existence of war is, is sort of perplexing. It, it means that there's got to be something sort of outside, something that's, that's getting into the middle of that, that's, that's causing people to, to put aside the, the peaceful trade and start fighting one another, especially fighting each other in total wars where there's all sorts of terrible devastation of, of capital, devastation of production, uh, devastation of lives. So, so this, that, that ideology started around the same time that the revolutionary wars were being waged. And Mises makes the claim that this put at least a temporary damper on, on the war making around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, if I could circle back, you said something, earlier about, uh, you know, protectionism, tariffs, things like that. And just to unpack that a little bit, because that's something too that uh, I don't, I certainly haven't seen stressed elsewhere. And frankly, I accept people in the Misesian tradition. I don't even see other people talking about this, but the idea that uh, interventionist policies into the economy are not merely bad because they make your people poorer per capita, but they actually lead to international conflict. And so, for example, you know, so I'm going to, of course, here, folks, kind of go through this real quickly, but both in human action, and I think he also does it um, in his booklet, Liberalism, by which Mises means like what we would call classical liberalism, um, and also his book, um, what is it? Is it called Omnipotent Government? Does that sound right, Jonathan? Yeah. I think that's, yeah. um, and I think the subtitle is The Rise of the Total State and the Total, the total War. Um, so, in those ones, I'm, I'm so I don't remember exactly where I'm probably mushing it together, but Mises is arguing that it's it's the planning mentality that leads to international conflict. So, for example, you're a country like Germany and you reject laissez-faire capitalism and you engage in central planning because hey, that's more efficient and rational. And if of all the government did was certain interventionist policies one at a time then the immediate thing is that German business would, would not be able to compete with foreign businesses. And so German consumers would just start importing things made abroad. Like, you know, if they, if they didn't have to deal with the, uh, whatever, like wage demands and things like that, that the German government was giving to the trade unions or something for the domestic industries, it would just be cheaper to import goods. So the only way to protect the domestic industries which have all these regulations that are laid on top of them and you know so-called social legislation and such is to have high tariff barriers. Okay. And so that kind of seals Germany off if we're doing it from the perspective of Germany from the rest of the world. Okay. But now you you don't have the advantages of the international division of labor and it matters if like there are certain key natural resources that Germany lacks that maybe some of its neighbors have. And so under a policy of classical liberalism and free trade, free markets, you know, Mises argues the average German citizen doesn't care whether, you know, a deposit of natural gas is in their borders or is in the adjacent country. Who cares? For, you know, if, if both countries are practicing laissez-faire, 
to the ultimate consumer. It doesn't matter whether it's you know a German who happens to own that deposit or a, you know someone who's French or whatever. It doesn't matter because the cost to you is the same for you know renting or buying natural gas or whatever. But it matters a lot if your country and then the neighbors too are all practicing central planning of various degrees and have high tariff barriers because now if that natural gas deposit is within your jurisdiction your country's jurisdiction you have access to it it can be worked into the grand economic plan whereas if it's outside up oh, sorry you don't have access to it and so that gives impetus that's why it quote makes sense economically for your government to be aggressive in terms of foreign policy Anyway, they can come up with various pretexts and, oh, there's people over there that speak German and they're not happy with that government and so we're just helping them. But it sort of greases the wheels for that sort of belligerence because it benefits you economically. Whereas Mises' point is, no, if, if all the nations of the world practice the principles of free trade and other you know elements of laissez-faire, war would be seen immediately just for how wasteless and counterproductive and destructive it is Whereas if all the governments are engaged in various degrees of central planning, it actually does, you know, if, if you're not getting blown up, it actually does benefit you materially if your country is relatively strong and can, you know, seize land and other resources. Whereas again, in our benchmark of classical liberalism, the war doesn't pay even in the short run to anybody. Yeah, I remember uh, Lucas Inglehart talking about this in uh, th in this year's Mises University. He was giving the the talk on um, free trade, and of course, he was making all of the, the the standard economic arguments for free trade. Some of which we we've talked about here. Um, um, but he he also addressed the uh, the national security argument. So a lot of times. Uh, economists will they'll make their case for free trade, saying that it's it's efficient, that um, it's it's not it's never a good idea to impose tariffs on on imports, um, and, and the and the reason why is because we want to we want to we want to make it so that all of the efficient producers of, of something are are the ones who are producing it. We don't want to to change what would happen if there was just you know a free market for for production even between countries. Uh, but he he addressed the the national security um, argument, uh, which is it actually goes outside the boundaries of economics. Um, it's something that that relies more on like tactics and strategy, um, as opposed to just you know who is who is the more profitable or more efficient producer of something. Um, but the, but the idea goes like this: is that if if we expect to be in war, then wouldn't it be good if we were if we had the ability to produce steel and produce weapons and produce uh, drugs and food uh, so that we can sort of sustain ourselves so that we can be sort of autarkic um, if, during a war. And he, he, he sort of, if I remember correctly, he said um, that, I, I mean, that there's nothing like immediately wrong with that view. Like, yeah, if you, if you expect to be fighting a bunch of other people, then it is, it is good to be sort of prepared to, to be isolated it, but he he said um, that that this that's really costly, and he he also uh, sort of questioned the effectiveness of of that sort of view, saying that um, I mean not not everything that we can produce is durable, meaning that meaning that we would have to sustain these industries over an indefinite time period to to be just to be able to produce something in the case where we are isolated in war. And I think he also made the point that if if that's the case, then it, it might it might cause us to be more likely to enter wars. Uh, whereas if we if we don't have that sort of economic isolation, like all of these industries that are already revved up and ready to go, where where we can um, feed ourselves during a war, if we didn't have that sort of thing, then we would. Let me make sure I say it correctly. If we don't have those industries already set to go, then we would be less likely to, to wage war with, with anybody and everybody. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we'll put a link to that. Uh, I haven't seen that particular talk just to give my thoughts on that. Cause it, it this kind of goes into another issue I wanted to bring up with you, Jonathan is uh, in terms of, let's say we have a government that is uh, at the very least of what we might call a night watchman state or a minarchist uh, state which Mises believed in, right? So folks don't, uh, even though many of us associated with the Mises Institute 
call ourselves anarcho-capitalists and the Rothbardian vein, Mises himself certainly believed that governments needed to exist to protect uh, standard property rights and defense from foreign invasion and so forth. And Mises would make the case that even though in in the midst of a, of a war, the countries that relied on the market economy would be prevail. And so, for example, the United States, like the, the reason the U.S. was so powerful, Mises argued, was was that it you know had a, an industrial powerhouse economy, largely because of its tradition of laissez-faire, uh, you know, at least relative to its peers. And so, for example, in the midst of a war, the last thing in the world you want to do, as Jonathan was talking about earlier, is you know, you're, what they're doing is they have to transfer the industrial capacity that's normally cranking out consumer goods for peacetime. You have to turn that over rapidly. So instead of making cars, you're making tanks. And instead of making radio sets or whatever, you're making bullets and whatever. And, and so how do you do that? Well, you want to reward entrepreneurship, right? You, you don't want to put in place, for example, an excess profits tax, that's the last thing you want to know. You want those entrepreneurs who figure out the best way to quickly revamp industry to be rewarded with high profits to give them the incentive to do so. And so it's, you know, Mises thought that, yes, in a major war, the government still has the role of being the one to buy the munitions. And so, like, and you don't need to have ration coupons and things like that. It's just, oh, the government, if they need a bunch of tanks, they raise taxes or the and or they borrow a bunch of money to go start buying tanks and then let market prices figure you know sort it out that the, the high prices for steel and other materials that go into the tanks will mean that regular commercial automobiles are really expensive and so households that were getting ready to buy a new car might all of a sudden see wow cars are 60 percent more expensive than they were last year why don't we keep driving this one a little bit longer and hopefully this war ends? You know, that's that's the kind of thing that happens. You don't need to have top-down government rationing of uh, automobile purchases and whatever. Hey, because there's a war on. So there's all that going on. So now to your specific issue there, Jonathan, about one of the standard arguments for tariffs, like you say, is war preparedness. Even there, I would say, so here, this is me talking. I don't remember Mises ever getting into this, this much of the weeds. But yeah, if there's some key component that you need, like, oh, to the circuits that we use in our fighter jets, it comes from China right now. And we get, and, and so rather than putting a tariff in place to keep that domestic industry afloat at the cost of you know, billions of dollars a year, well, why maybe would it be cheaper just to go ahead and import a bunch of those, you know, that material? And stockpile it. And you say, oh, well, it'll only last for two years. Okay, so import two years worth. And then we have a two-year window. And if it looks like hostilities are rising, then you could still, with 18 months lead time, start building up the factories. You know what I mean? There's lots of things you could do. And just in general, if like you're just some business and your job is to give certain types of produce to the grocery store... And you just know that, oh, historically, hey, there might be a storm here and that supply might run out. Like it's your job to figure out where to source these things from. So likewise, if you're the Pentagon and you have big military contracts, you know, your domestic uh, suppliers can figure out, well, gee, in the event of a war with China, maybe this key input would stop coming in. So we should have our own supply. You know what I mean? In other words, you don't need the, the federal government to put a tariff in place if really the issue was just, oh, yeah, there's these few key items that we need to be able to produce stuff, like that's something the producers themselves could come up with and they could make their case to the Pentagon, for example, saying, you know, oh, this is why we have to charge this because we have to keep these factories like, you know, on mothballs or whatever right now to be able to switch on in case blah, blah, blah happen. So there's all kinds of things you could do. But again, the idea that the way we're going to solve for these really particular specific scenarios is to have a general tariff I think is silly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and Mises um, also talks about how, so you were talking about how um, Mises's views on how wars are funded uh, and like how they actually gather the resources. And Mises does make the claim that, uh, like you said, it doesn't require a complete government takeover of the economy. So, so waging war doesn't require war socialism. Uh, in, in fact, there's a, I can't remember the exact wording, but there's a one-liner in there from Mises where 
Uh, Mises says that a, a capitalist country has never been taken over by a socialist country. Uh, and there he's, he's simply just talking about the, the way capitalism enables countries to, to produce as much as they need, not, not just weapons, but also uh, like sustaining and, and healing soldiers and, and citizens during, during the wartime. <clears throat> but he also makes this point that uh, the U.S., and he singles out the U.S., did not need to take take over the economy as much as they did in World War II in order to be successful. Um, he, he said, and here I'm, I'm reading from the article, um, he, uh, the United States mobilized the entire economy toward the war effort. Mises remarked that uh, victory did not require heavy price controls and direct rationing. The government could have financed the war through taxes, borrowing, and inflation, which is, I mean, not something that you would expect to hear from, from Mises. Uh, but continuing, but the government succumbed to unionist pressure and took took on the impossible task of preserving workers' pre-war standard of living in war. This inevitably led to the government's complete control of production. So this is a, a classic case of of interventionism leading to interventionism, and it all has this root cause of of the government trying to at least pretend that the pre-war standards of living are being maintained. So, which obviously you can't do, especially in a war the size of World War II, um, it's, it's going to take a huge amount of resources to wage war. And this that's got to come at a cost. It's not like the government can just sort of magically create these resources to wage war. And that's going to come at the, co- at the cost of, of citizens' standards of living. But if, if the government wants to try to make this uh, commitment to uh, to the people saying we're gonna we're gonna maintain your standard of living during war, then what that means is they have to use this myriad of of price controls and rationing in order to do so. So they they, they have to you know pile on interventions on top of interventions, um, and the end result is you get war socialism, which is what we had in the U.S. during World War II. So the we had the, the U.S. government took over pretty much every aspect of the of the economy with with price controls and rationing a complete nationalization of of some industries um and it was all for the sake of of waging war but mises's point here just to reiterate it was was that the u.s did not have to do that to be victorious in the war so mises was saying that um the price controls and the rationing were not required that that the u.s still could have won with just taxing, borrowing, and using inflation, using the printing press. And that this would have just, using those methods, the, the taxing and, and the inflating, it would have decreased everybody's standards of living, or at least uh, some people and most people's standard of living in the form of you know just direct takings in the form of taxes, but also in a lower purchasing power of money through inflation. Uh, but but that should be expected. That should, that should not be something that we... Uh, that we try to hide or try to pretend doesn't exist when we're waging these modern total wars. Uh, and, so, and so Mises said that because the government was trying to maintain the appearance of standards of living during the, during the war, that it, had to, it basically had to take over the entire economy. Yeah, and just to sort of say it in different words, make sure the listeners are, are getting that, that again, the, you're the U.S. government, you need to create a bunch of battleships and uh, you know aircraft carriers and tanks and aircraft and so forth, and you're going to send it overseas. And so how do you actually get that done? And what Jonathan is saying is Mises' point is they need to spend money, and how do they come up with the resources to do that? Well, they could levy taxes, they could borrow, or they could even run the printing press, and that's all they would need to do in order to go ahead and go out in the marketplace and command those resources to be diverted away from whatever civilian purposes they were de- originally destined for to redirect them to come into the war effort. As opposed to like just nationalizing the steel industry or something or, or you know to impose more top-down controls to say, oh, you got to stop making cars right now because we need those resources for tanks. That No, th- those sorts of supplemental orders from the government were completely superfluous. All the government needed to do was enter the market as the buyer with the most resources behind it. And also too, Jonathan, I think he was probably just being intellectually honest by saying those three standard methods methods of finance would have sufficed that elsewhere, I know Mises has written saying, 
when governments resort to inflation to fund a war effort that's inherently undemocratic that because he's saying it's in a sense if the government is is admitting basically oh yeah we have this huge expense uh, and like for example all the belligerents in world war 1 the us was pretty good about it they did have some deviations from the gold standard but they were pretty good whereas the, all the other major belligerents even though going into world war 1 they were all on what we call the classical gold standard. They all, again, except for the U.S., completely removed their currencies from the gold peg. That was because they also, oh, yeah, we couldn't possibly afford the war without just running the printing press. But, again, just the fact that you crank out more marks if you're Germany or francs if you're France, that doesn't make more iron ore available. That doesn't create more rubber. That doesn't create more labor hours of skilled workers to, to build you munitions and things. So clearly it's just rearranging where the cost of the war effort falls by the government printing the money. And so the fact that they don't want to do it explicitly through taxation or even borrowing kind of shows that, oh yeah, if the people realized what was causing their standard of living to go down, namely I was looking at the government's taxing and borrowing, they might object and say, you know, why don't you sue for peace? Whereas if it's just, oh, yeah, everything's getting all expensive all of a sudden and we're in the middle of a war, it's probably those speculators. It's, you know, oh, it's those dastardly French or those dastardly Germans that are making everything so expensive, not realizing, no, it's your government by running the printing press, you know, siphoning all these real resources out of conventional uses and into the war effort. That's why there's not much left to go around to make things for the home front. And so it's, it's disguising the, the true cost. Yeah, this is uh, this is an extremely important point, and and I think so. So I mean, we have a sort of a nuanced view on on democracy at, at the at the Mises Institute, and especially if you're a fan of Hans Hermann Hoppe's work. Uh, but but some would say it's it, not even nuanced. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but if you uh, if you think that that the will of the people is is important in governance, um, so like if you would agree with with the idea that. Uh, that democracy is a is a good. It's like an end in and of itself, and it's because if we have democracy, then the, what the government is doing reflects the will of the people. It means if you have that view, then you should totally reject inflation. You should totally reject uh, central bank uh, debt monetization. And the reason why is is just as you said. It's that that. W- Whenever you start to do that sort of thing, it means that there's this disconnect between what the government is doing, how much it's spending, and how much it's collecting in taxes. And of course, we all agree that uh, that taxes are, are theft, um, but but it's still it's a very unpopular thing to do. So yes, it is theft, but but that doesn't mean that politicians can just take however much they want in the form of taxes, that, that there are these constraints on the other side of, of it. So that if, if they start to collect too much in taxes or attempt to collect too much in taxes, then, then they would get voted out. Uh, then you might even see some, some civil unrest. You, you might see the revolt that we talked about before. And so the idea is that the amount that the government can collect in taxes, it, it is a limiting factor on, on the size of government. It, it, it limits how much the government can spend because if uh, if the government wanted to spend more, it would have to increase its tax collections, and everybody knows that that's an unpopular thing to do. But if if the government has this money printer, if the government has this central bank that is a ready buyer of of its own debt, then what it means is that spending can can go way beyond, well beyond uh, what the government collects in taxes. Um, and, and this is something that I've been talking about um, a lot lately. Is that this? What that means is that the the government the government itself has no boundaries. Uh, there, there's nothing that's really limiting how much the government can spend, uh, simply because uh, the effects of that inflation are subtle and complex. It's hard to convince people that the fact that they see these higher prices at the grocery store, it's because the government has increased its spending. Um, it, and like you said, it's very easy for the government to, to come up with some sort of scapegoat like the speculators or even the, the people that you're fighting. It's their fault that everything is so expensive here. And so because of that, that mental disconnect b- between uh, government spending and the, re- the effects or the consequences of inflation on the people, it means that uh, 
it means that inflation is not as unpopular as taxes are. And it means that governments can very easily resort to the printing press to, to wage wars, to finance wars, um, when they would, they definitely would not be able to do so to, to the same extent, um, if they had to collect everything in the form of taxes. And this is something that we actually see in us history. Um, the, so the federal reserve was created in 1913, but in World War One and in World War II, um, ex- the Federal Reserve explicitly took on the role of financing government deficits. So, so the the money printer actually, like, very explicitly said, one of our jobs is to make it easier for the government to wage war. Um, and so, and that's like just a to- there's a total disconnect between that and what the people are ready and willing to pay for um, if if they are even on the side of of the of the state in in waging its wars yeah i uh used to show classes when it was the right time in the certain undergrad courses if you looked at the early balance sheet of the fed i would say if you ever forget when major u.s wars were just look at the fed's balance sheet and then you can figure it out (laughs) um and i think with the great society programs like that that pattern like then you couldn't do it anymore but um, it was the war on poverty, so even there, whenever the U.S. government declares war on something, the Fed's ready and willing to help. Um, wherever there's conflict, we'll be there. Uh, <laughs> just a real quick nerdy aside, and then maybe we'll come back to one final topic here as, as I'm watching the clock, Jonathan. So I, if for people who want to take this logic, to, and to my view, like the, it's, its ultimate extension – is to say, so, so Mises laying the, the foundation, saying, look, at, you don't need socialism, right? The, like, in other words, there are some people, even like National Review conservative types, who might argue that, oh, yeah, Norland peacetime, sure, let capitalism flourish. Where, but when it comes to war, like, it was a good thing that FDR, uh, you know, and, or Woodrow Wilson, you know, had all sorts of taking cartelization of industry or because come on, there's a war effort. You can't have frivolous expenditures. It was important for the, the higher ups to kind of take control of things and let people's, oh yeah, some women didn't get nylon stockings for a couple of years, boohoo. And that, that mentality is wrong. And Mises showed that, no, the, the reason, just like you trust the market economy to give you better cars at a lower prices and whatnot, Likewise, let the market economy give you better tanks at lower resource costs because that's ultimately how you win a war. It's you 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 want to take a given amount of resources and make the most of it and have the most tanks and most bombers per unit of input. And so, what method of social organization does that for you? It's not socialism, that's for sure, right? So, but then to take that logic though and to say, okay, but still, uh, why would you trust? the central or the federal government to be in charge of the expenditures. Like normally we don't trust Washington to do much very efficiently. Why would they be good at assessing international threats and knowing, well, gee, how much should we be willing to pay for these bombers and how many bombers should, and should we have bombers or instead should we just have a bunch of infantry and surface to air missiles to be able to repel invade, you know, repel invaders. Maybe we should have a fortress America strategy, right? Like there's a lot of decisions that we're sort of leaving in the hands of, Congress and or the executive branch that normally as free marketeers, we don't think are there. So I've in my work gone through and shown how you could really push this privatization logic to the extreme and devolve a lot of those responsibilities into the the private sector. So we'll put links, folks, if you want to see that kind of stuff. But I think for our time right here, Jonathan, maybe just to appeal to a more mainstream uh, audience, we're talking about war and the economy. So can you speak to, there's this popular notion that say what you will, but war is good for the economy, especially if like you're not the one getting bombed like that. Oh yeah. The war definitely helps the U S if it's being waged in in Europe. So do you want to speak to that? Sure. So, so for those who are new to these sorts of ideas, I, I highly recommend you check out economics in one lesson by Henry Hazlitt. Um, and at the very beginning of that book, he he goes through what's called the broken window parable, and he was borrowing this from another economist by the name of Frederick Bastiat. And and this uh, this parable, this lesson, just totally destroys that that myth that you mentioned that that waging war is good for the economy. Um, for, first, I'll I'll just mention like the Keynesian perspective, then we'll, we then we can talk about how it's wrong. So so from like this Keynesian perspective. 
any sort of government spending is good. So since government spending is, is one component of total spending in the economy, and all of this spending is a part of aggregate demand, then if we're in a recession, especially, so if, if we're lacking in, in, in output and in, in production, if our economy is just not as big as we want it to be, then we, then we can just boost spending however, like whatever it takes to boost spending. And so that's why you'll see Keynesian economists, they'll argue for all sorts of, of fiscal policy and monetary policy that's aimed at increasing spending. But uh, the alternative view, so the Austrian view, is that what really uh, bolsters an economy is savings. What really, what really allows an economy to grow is, is capital accumulation and the ability to, to, to produce, uh, which, which is not accomplished by just spending on whatever. But the broken window parable goes like this. So there's this boy that throws a brick through a, a shopkeeper's window and the shopkeeper comes out and he's all mad about this. But then a crowd gathers and they reflect on this, this event, the broken window, and, and they decide that this is actually good for the economy because now the shopkeeper is going to have to spend money to the glass repair guy to, to fix the window and now that the glass repair guy has this money in his pocket, he can go spend it on other things in the economy. And so, and they just sort of like think through like the the cause and effect chain. So they think about all the spending uh, that was started, that was stimulated by the by the broken window. And the error in the crowd's thinking is is that the broken window did not actually start a new chain of spending. All it does is it just redirects what what money is being spent on. And if you just think about the counterfactual, if you think about what the shopkeeper would have done if the if the window were not broken, then then you clearly see this. So it's not like the shopkeeper um, was was just ready and waiting, just just delighted with the with the prospect of his of his window being broken. No, he was planning on using that money to buy something else. I think in in one of the versions of the story, it's a pair of shoes. And so when the when the economy has this broken window, when the young hoodlum breaks the, the window, it means that, that this community loses the pair of shoes. It loses the, the value of the pair of shoes to the shopkeeper. And so instead of getting the instead of having an unbroken window and a new pair of shoes, now the shopkeeper just has to settle for um, just the repaired broken uh, yeah, the repaired window. And all it's important to remember that the purchase of the pair of shoes also has a chain of spending behind it. So if you compare the two timelines, it really is the, the case that the timeline where the window is not broken, the that economy, that community is better off without the window being broken. Okay, so now to connect this to war, if you, if you think about what war is um, and really what pretty much anything the government does in terms of its spending on, on various infrastructure projects, they're all broken windows. It's all just a redirection of, of the way resources are spent and used and, and consumed and especially in war destroyed. And so there's no, there's no way for all of this mass destruction to be like actually good for the economy because it represents a using up of resources. It, it, it represents a redirection of resources away from what they would have been used for, namely satisfying consumers. So a, a lot of the people who are in favor of, of war because it's good for the economy, what they're forgetting about is, is what the baker or the shopkeeper would have spent his money on. They're, they're forgetting about what the economy would have done, what consumers would have been able to enjoy if their government wasn't, wasn't waging war. Great. Yeah. And just to make sure, so that, that was uh, perfect, Jonathan, but just to make sure people aren't misunderstanding. So folks, Jonathan's not saying it's not good for the economy if some nation sends their bombers over and breaks a thousand of our windows and then we got to rebuild them. I mean, that's that's true, but that's not merely what he's saying. He's saying even if the U.S. government, for example, spends a bunch of money maintaining this huge air force, that that per se, and, and the justification being, well, you know, I, I hope we don't have to go to war or whatever, but it's good. But, you know, look at all the jobs that are being created like around all those, you know, all the, the factories cranking out those B-52s. Those workers now get paychecks and they go out in the community and they take their wives shopping and they go to the diner and that provides employment. And look at all these communities that are just budding up around uh, the air bases and whatever, where these B-52s are parked normally in peacetime. And, da, 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 da. and so look at all of the first, second, third round of spending that has occurred. 
And that is also that same fallacy at play, that all that's really doing is redirecting the employment pattern. So yes, if the US government spends hundreds of billions of dollars over the course of a few years to build up an air force and park the planes at certain key locations, you will see workers move to those areas, that's true, but if the government refrained from that spending, it's not that those workers would just be permanently unemployed, they would have been absorbed into the structure of production elsewhere. And in the final analysis, making things that directly benefit people, right? So per se, the fact that there's a bunch of ICBMs sitting down the road from you doesn't improve your standard of living the way having more food or shelter does. So to be clear, if you think it's, it's necessary in terms of national security and you're like, well, yeah, but I'd rather not get invaded. Okay, but, but that's a separate argument, right? So again, we're not directly here tackling the issue of foreign policy per se. What we're addressing is a lot of times people will make this supplemental argument and say, regardless of whether we need these extra planes you know, for deterrence or whatever, it's good for the economy, the fact that the government spent the money to build the planes. And that's the, the, the argument that we're tackling and saying, no, because if they didn't spend that money, then you know those workers and resources would have been redirected elsewhere. And in general, having consumers direct resources is much more productive and beneficial to the consumers than having people in Washington, D.C. be in charge of those spending flows. I think. Okay. Uh, Go ahead, Jonathan. You wanted to take oh, the final. I was word? just going to say. I think Tom Woods uh, came up with this uh, great, like, thought experiment, uh, which is that if the if it were true that breaking windows and destruction and war were good for the economy, then we w- we could come up with an arrangement with uh, another country. I think in his example was Japan, where where we both you know use a bunch of our resources and employ a bunch of people and spend as much as it takes to make all of these uh, battleships, very high tech, expensive battleships. And then we, we send them out into the middle of the ocean and, you know, we don't want to kill anybody. So we'll make sure that there's no people on the boats. Uh, but then we'll just sort of remotely have the, these uh, battleships fire on each other and sink them so that they go down into the ocean. And we would just keep doing this over and over again. If, if it were the case that the, that the broken window theory uh, was, was true and, and, and destruction is good for the economy, then obviously that would be good for the economy. But I mean, Obviously, that's not true. Obviously, that would be a, a huge waste of resources. And so once you see that, once you see that that sort of thought experiment involves a huge waste of resources, then you see, well, yeah, that's right. That war can't be good for the economy. Very good. Although, as you were describing that, I was thinking I actually might watch that if they did a pay-per-view. Yeah. That, <laughs> that would be entertaining, yeah. wouldn't it? <laughs> it's sort of like a, a BattleBots TV show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's a good stopping point. Uh, thank you, Jonathan, as always, for your time. Well, thanks for having me, Bob. And thank you, folks, for tuning in. We will see you next time. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. In the meantime, you can find more content like this on Mises.org. Mises.org.